I'm Rebecca Deschwinitz, and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you to Dialogue Gospel Study for July 26, 2020. Today, we'll be exploring Alma 36 through 38 with Nathan Kitchen, Board Chair Michael Austin, and fellow Dialogue Board member Chris Kimball may also make appearances from time to time as they help out with tech and some other things. Those of you who have joined us before already know this, but for, but for new folks, please use the chat function to comment and ask questions that are respectful and in keeping with our teacher's message. You'll probably wanna make sure that you're directing those to um, panelists and other attendees rather than um, just to panelists. Uh, we always love seeing what you're thinking and saying to each other and anticipate drawing on your thoughts at some point in the lesson today as we try to facilitate in this brave new virtual world of ours, some sort of discussion. We also invite you to check out previous gospel study lessons, uh, links to those uh, in both video and podcast format can be found at our website, dialoguejournal.com, along with the entire 50 plus years of the journal. Welcome as well to those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live. If for some reason we get disconnected there, know that we'll get that up and running as soon as we can. Nathan Kitchen, our teacher today, is the president of Affirmation LGBTQ Mormons, Families, and Friends. Affirmation is a 43-year-old organization that creates worldwide communities of safety, love, and hope supporting LGBTQIA individuals and their families as they define their individual spirituality and intersection with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Nathan served a mission in Alabama, graduated with a BS in zoology from BYU, earned a doctorate of dental medicine from Southern Illinois University, and completed a general practice residency at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. He is currently in private practice in Mesa, Arizona. His work with the Latter-day Saint LGBTQIA community most recently took him back to BYU, where affirmation began in 1977. He is the proud father of five amazing children and lives in Gilbert, Arizona, where he joins us from today with his husband, Matthew Rivera. We are so grateful for the time and spiritual, intellectual, and emotional preparation that Nathan has put into today's lesson. We appreciate his perspective and value what he brings to our faith tradition. Dialogue is committed to offering through the journal and through everything else that we do, a space for the expression of some of the most vibrant thinking in Mormonism. And we have been just absolutely thrilled to explore the Book of Mormon over the last several months with such an amazing group of people. As with our caveat, uh, as with any Latter-day Saint uh, Sunday School class, the views expressed today, as always, are the teacher's own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Before Nathan begins, we are pleased to offer a musical number performed by Yesse Purcell Wilson, who will be accompanied on the piano by Daniel Soguccio. Yesse is the vice president of the newly established Affirmation Hawaii chapter and is a senior at BYU Hawaii studying music. His passions include teaching Sunday school, directing choirs, pedagogy, Polynesian culture, and faith's intersection with being gay. After our music, the opening prayer will be offered by Calvin Burke, who is a rising senior at BYU. Calvin has served as a research assistant in the Department of Church History and Doctrine and currently assists Dr. Terrell Givens in the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship on an upcoming biography of Dialogue founder, Eugene England. Uh, Calvin has been invited to participate in conferences at Claremont Graduate University, the Mormon History Association, and the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. An openly gay Latter-day Saint, he has served as a student lead for the official BYU LGBTQ student outreach and is devoted to fostering LGBTQ plus inclusion at BYU and beyond. The most followed BYU student on Twitter, his work has been published in By Common Consent and LDS Living. A featured voice on KSL and NPR, Calvin's advocacy has been covered by the Daily Beast, the Salt Lake Tribune, the Independent, and the Washington Post. 
Bylines aside, Calvin enjoys passing the mic to other marginalized voices. And, and I usually wait till the end, but I'm going to also introduce um, Camlyn Giddens, who will be offering our closing prayer today because both Camlyn and Calvin have agreed to be some of our scripture readings um, through Nathan's lesson. So uh, Camlyn is an artist and teacher. She graduated from BYU with a degree in media arts. And after spending some time on the East Coast is back in Utah, or at least is based here, where she currently teaches film, photography, and storytelling at Walden School of the Arts in Provo. She's also the Community Engagement Coordinator at Encircle. She's been involved in numerous film projects, including, and I'll just name a couple, uh, short films on civil rights for Studies Weekly and The Coal Minority, which won the Best Documentary Short at the New York City Workers Unite Film Festival. So uh, we'll have our music, our prayer, and then uh, Nathan's lesson. Thank you. 
our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have to gather together as saints in, in thy name on the Sabbath day. We're so grateful for dialogue and for the Dialogue Foundation and for the, the many sacrifices that those who, who serve those who serve all of us make that we might be able to gather together in, in study and faith. Our Father, we're grateful for our forebears and, and for their faith and for their courage. We pray that we might be able to also have courage, that we might follow their examples, that we might be wise as serpents and, and harmless as doves. We pray that we might be able to use our own faith to, to strengthen and to, to lift others, that we might be blessed with charity, not just for one another, but especially for our faith traditions. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might, that we might use our, our privilege to be able to stand for the marginalized and for the oppressed. We might remember that among the many covenants we've made, we have also covenanted to, to mourn with those that mourn and, and bear one another's burdens, that they might be light. Father, we pray that that might be with for the kitchen today as he teaches that he might be able to have thy spirit that he might be able to uplift all of us that we might be able to to stand in in the places that we've been called in, and and lift in our various stewardships that we might help redeem this help redeem this world and help to redeem our our communities and and our countries we pray for these things humbly in the name of thy son jesus christ amen Thank you. Thank you, Calvin, for that prayer. And, and thank you, Yesse, for your beautiful music. It was moving, and I am now a mess, but I will try to pull myself together. That was a beautiful song, and it ties in very well today with what we will be speaking about. So first, I just wish you all a good morning. I sincerely hope that you are all well and staying safe as we experience this global pandemic together. I want to acknowledge those who are associated with the, the economic storm uh, that, that is with this, and I am mindful of those who are left wanting. And to those who have lost loved ones, I extend my arms in empathy and, and I mourn with you. I am so very sorry. So I am grateful to have this opportunity to be your dialogue, gospel, study instructor today. I bring you warm greetings from the margins as a refugee of the faith. I thought I might begin with an introduction about my background and, as, and of affirmation for those who are unfamiliar with it. I have had the honor to be part of Affirmation's leadership team for the past five years, with the last year and a half as the elected president. Like Rebecca said, Affirmation is a 43-year-old LGBTQ-led organization of the one and for the one. We stand squarely in the pressure cooker of the LGBTQ Latter-day Saint intersection, providing first aid for those who feel acute rejection and loss. We are best known for building worldwide communities of safety, love, and hope. But most importantly, we have a lot of fun. You put a bunch of LGBTQ Mormons together in, in a room and within five minutes, we were the best of friends and already planning what our next activity will be. Our Mormon heritage experiences are the ties that bind, whether we are in the church, out of the church, or all points in between. It is such a great network to be a part of. Affirmation not only ties us together today, but it connects the generations of LGBTQ peers who have each taken their turn over the years, creating a life-saving space in the LGBTQ Latter-day Saint intersection. How each generation does this is unique to the current social landscape of the time. And this landscape is rapidly changing both in society and in the church. You might be interested to know some of our latest findings from our strategic planning survey gathered in May of this year. <clears throat> it gives a more complete picture of who we are than what can be gathered from our occasional appearances in an enzyme or a curated uh, video on a church website. 
In our survey, we had 320 respondents who participate in Affirmation's communities and programs. This was the largest ever response in our history. And here are a few highlights. So this is slide one. As far as church membership, in Affirmation, 71% are current members of the church. 13% are resigned members. 9% are excommunicated or have had their membership withdrawn and 4% have never been a member. So 71% are members of the church. As far as belief goes, 24% strongly believe in the doctrines of the church. 26% believe, 28% somewhat believe, 11% disbelieve, and 3% strongly disbelieve. So this means that 88% hold to some sort of belief in the doctrines of the church. And then as far as activity and attendance, 41% are not active in the church and 19% are somewhat active. 21% are active and then 17% are extremely active. So we have 60% that are not active or have very low activity in the church. So this is interesting because it shows the marginalized uh, nature of what it means to be an LGBTQ member in the church. Um, more people hold a belief than, than are even members of the church, yet 60% uh, don't attend or attend very rarely. So let's move to slide two. And hopefully this will come through well. This is what is important for members uh, of affirmation, for affirmation to be doing. On the question of the importance of constructive engagement with the church leadership in Salt Lake City, 76% 70%, find it a high to extreme importance. And 13% uh, show this as a moderate importance to them. On the question of importance that affirmation and its leaders publicly advocate for LGBTQ issues, fairness, and inclusion, and affirmation in the media, 81% rate this as a high to extreme important uh, measure, while 12% rate this as moderately important. And then finally, when asked the importance that affirmation partners with interfaith and community LGBTQ organizations, 70% give this a high to extreme importance 17% in moderate importance. What this shows us for our work uh, that LGBTQ Latter-day Saints desire is, first, see us, acknowledge us, second, advocate for us, and then lastly, connect us. So finally, a disclaimer. In affirmation, we do not prescribe a path but affirm and trust the self-determination of each individual as they define their own spirituality in ways that feel safe and peaceful for them. This latitude of self-determination even extends to me as president. Because of this, the things I will talk about today as we cover Alma 36 through 38 come, to my, uh, come from my experiences and the thoughts that are my own. They do not represent affirmation. Instead, they become part of the dialogue and not dogma. And this is the beauty of affirmation is capacious tech. We are in continuous dialogue. So let's begin the dialogue. In today's text, Mormon pauses his abridged narrative and inserts a primary source. Alma chapters 36 through 42 are Alma's commandments to his three sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Corianton. And they're transferred from Alma's personal handwritten records made 300 years earlier. For me, this signals that Mormon felt that the primary source was extremely valuable. But what does this mean for a historian? My husband is a historian of early modern France and the Catholic Reformation. So I asked him, at what point in your writings would you feel to quote a primary source verbatim? And for Matt, he includes the primary source when the syntax could not be summarized more effectively than the original. 
Most importantly, original text is included when the text is linguistically powerful. And any attempts to put it in my own words would diminish its effectiveness and force. So therefore, this inclusion is Mormon's nota bene to us as we proceed. Pay attention. So how did we get to this important pause in Mormon's narrative? Alma had just assembled an all-star missionary team to reclaim the Zoramites. And who is on this team tells you of both the difficulty and importance of the task at hand. Alma included Aaron, Ammon, and Omner, who were three of the four sons of Mosiah, who were wildly successful in their mission to the Lamanites. Two, he included Amulek, a heavy hitter pickup from Alma's mission in Melek. Three, he included Zeezrom, first described as a child of hell by Alma, and he was converted, by, converted in Ammonihah by Alma, going from zero to hero in about a year's time. And finally, rounding out the roster, Alma's two younger sons, Shiblon and Corianti. Despite the team and their combined experiences, they were still astonished beyond measure by the Zoramites. The team was eventually successful in destroying the Zoramite priestcraft, but as we know, any time you destroy a machine, there is intense pushback. And in this instance, a worst case scenario occurred. War erupts and refugees were created. This is not the outcome that Alma desired or even planned for, and it grieved him deeply. He had assembled the best of the best and labored intensely, knowing that the word of God had a more powerful effect on the minds of the people than the sword. Yet here it had failed. And it was at this point we pivot from the missionary chapters in Alma to the war chapters. And it, as it is at this highly important junction in the narrative that Mormon inserts Alma's own words to his sons. So Alma is now facing a tragic and momentous loss, watching his people descend into what will become a 20-year war. And it is here in great sorrow that he gathers his sons together to speak with them. And as a father, I, I so get this. When the November 5th policy was leaked to the world, I was sitting on my couch doing nothing particularly important. And until the day I die, I will remember the enveloping darkness as my curiosity turned to a crushing disbelief as the news of the exclusion policy continuously rolled through my newsfeed. This handbook change preventing the children of same-sex marriage couples from being baptized and branding same-sex couples as apostates was so unbelievable that I initially dismissed it as an obviously sensationalized story. It didn't seem scriptural. It wasn't kind. It didn't seem doctrinal. And at that moment, I had an instant testimony that it was just not true. My church could never do this to my children. This was not the church that I knew, but it was real. So I get why Alma caused that his sons be gathered together at the point, at this point in time. As a parent, when things look dark, you do think of your children desire to gather them in and share wisdom and insight as you comfort them. So on Sunday, the, the, the November 8th, I gathered my three sons together after church. It was a tender moment to talk with them about the policy, my experiences in the church, and the humility and grandness of Christ, forgiving those who know not what they do. It was a sacred moment as a father, as they held back tears, and worked through a conversation when my youngest son asked me, why would they want to do that to us? It was at that moment, really, that we became a refugee family. And so it is from this mindset of sorrow and grief that we begin Alma 36. In Alma 36, we are privileged to hear Alma's conversion story in first person, where he declares that he was born of God, we got the gist of this conversion story when Mormon summarized it in his own words back in Mosiah 27. This was as, uh, when Mormon was moving the story along in the timeline narrative. Mormon the historian provided a very objective observation of Alma's experience, but now we get to hear the rest of the story in first person. As a clinician, I work from a diagnosis. 
any procedure I undertake, I must first have a diagnosis that supports my actions. Sometimes we do not know enough information to make a full diagnosis, but rather than sit around and watch a patient deteriorate, we have enough information to form a working diagnosis so that we can begin treatment as we wait for more information. So if I were to happen upon Alma right as he was waking from his three days of unconsciousness and hear him speak, I could reasonably, reasonably form a working diagnosis that indeed Alma had been born of God. However, every diagnosis relies on two components. Yes, there is an objective component that we can measure, but a diagnosis is also reached by a subjective component as well. The subjective is the patient's experience in their own words. It is their personal narrative on what they are experiencing and how they are experiencing it. It is a necessary, even mandatory component along with the objective to reach a diagnosis. And I find subjective observations critical in reaching a diagnosis. All too long, it seems like we reduce the process of, re of repentance and being born of God to objective measures. We like lists, we like recipes, we like conditions to be met. But I testify that repentance is not transactional. In primary, we are objectively taught the four R's of repentance, recognize, remorse, restitution, and resolve. Most certainly you can find these four R's very easily in Alma's repentance story. And as missionaries, we again objectively teach the four R's. So in slide three, uh, Michael, in the 1986 standardized six discussions, which I used in Alabama, um, you can see that uh, we can repent and we, we go through the four R's as we teach. And then we won't necessarily read this, but if you go to the next slide, um, the updated Come Follow Me, again, missionaries teach the four R's. And you could recognize these R's. Certainly we are all very familiar with these R's. This reinforces the objective nature of the work. It's a teach me all that I must do to live with him someday model that at times introduces shame because the focus is on sin, recognizing sin, paying for your sins, and avoiding sin. If there was only something more uplifting to focus on than sin. This is why I appreciate Alma's subjective experience told in his own words as a critical part of the diagnosis of being born of God. Are the four R's found in Alma's story? Absolutely but we get the critical component from Alma that is missing from objective repentance. So let's move to slide five. And uh, Calvin, if you will start us off by reading Alma 36, 16 through 20. This is Alma's experience as he is born again. And now, for three days and for three nights I was racked, even with the pains of a damned soul. And it came to pass that as I was thus racked with torment, while I was harrowed up by the memory of, by my, of my many sins, behold, I remembered also to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. Now, as my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. And now behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. And oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. So, Calvin, who did Alma remember in this process here? He talks about Jesus, the Son of God. I, said, I mean, at first he remembers his father, though, his father sharing that, that testimony of Jesus, which I think, is, I think is interesting. Yeah. We'll talk about that, um, how he remembered his father in a bit. But you're right. 
Being born of God involves Christ, and Alma shows us this. There is no repentance without Christ. In Alma's experience between recognition and remorse and then restitution and resolve, Christ is in the middle of it all. How we intersect with Christ is the very tender and sacred subjective experience that is the essence of being born of God. The four R's of primary, the four R's of the missionary discussions, even the assignments that a bishop may give you if, he, if he's working with you through um, a confession. These are all objective measurements, measurable signs. However, they are tools, some useful and some not. The key is personally involving Christ, and that is sacredly subjective, more powerful than lists. And remember that Christ is not our jailer. Christ is our liberator. By focusing on Christ, repentance becomes a Christ-centered rethinking. Perhaps you have all felt this. You feel yourself so broken that you cannot fix yourself. And even after competent professional help for the physical and mental brokenness, there's still a part of you that nobody else can fix. You hit rock bottom and you call out. And then you feel the reach of the divine. It is the divine that fixes you. It is the love of Christ that burns in your heart and it comforts you, loves you, changes you, transforms you. The four R's don't fix you. It is Christ that heals. But how does Christ do this? In Alma 36, Alma, a.k.a. Alma the Younger, is teaching his son Helaman that Christ is the key to being born again by recounting his own conversion story. Like Calvin mentioned, like father, like son, Alma heard his father's own conversion story. Alma's father, as you know, was one of the priests who sat with King Noah and listened to a chained divinity call Noah to repentance. Alma's father was the only priest who believed Abinadi. Did Abinadi recite the four hours of repentance to Noah? No, but he does lay out the Ten Commandments. And then Abinadi pivots and says that salvation does not come from the law of Moses. He then teaches Noah Isaiah chapter 53, which is the high point of Isaiah. He teaches how Christ is essential for repentance and being born of God. It's some of the last words that we hear from Abinadi, and it's highly important, and it shows us how Christ is involved, how Christ does this. So if we can move to slide six, and Camlin, I know this is long, but will you read um, Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 12 for us? Sure. <clears throat> oh, that's not Isaiah 54. I'll look it up. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Mosiah 14, 4 oh. through 12. Okay, so you do want me to read this. Perfect. Yes, there okay. we go. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is so done, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And then, yes. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he hath done no evil, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
He shall see the travail of his, soul, of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Cameron. This, this is the powerful Christ that Abinadi shows. This is the powerful Christ that Alma the Younger remembers hearing from his father. This is the Christ that is right in the center of being born again. Our brokenness is swallowed up in Christ, literally swallowed up in Christ. And it is at this realization that we comprehend that our souls will not be left in hell. And that, as Alma said, that he would not be banished and become extinct, both soul and body. Christ overcomes this, and he is at the center of it all. It happens to each one of us very subjectively and is essential in our declaration, in our own diagnosis, that we are born of God. So let me pose a question. What are some practical ways that you write Christ into your repentance? So maybe while we wait for a few answers, let me give you uh, one of my own. Remember in Alma 36, 17, Alma recounts that as I was racked with torment, while I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins, behold, I remembered. What did he remember? He remembered Jesus Christ. The teachings of Isaiah as given by Abinadi passed through Alma the Elder to Alma the Younger. This is the power of the word of God and to repentance. We have a weekly opportunity to write Christ into our continual rethinking when we partake of the sacrament. So, Michael, if we can go to slide seven, I'll read the sacrament prayer here. Every week, we're placed under covenant. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son, and witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him and keep his commandments which, we, which he has given them, that they may always have the Spirit to be with them. Amen. If we are going to think of the four R's, let's add a fifth one, a fifth critical one. Remember. Remember Christ. Remembering Christ is living like Christ and is central to being born of God. So before we move forward, does anyone have an insight on how they themselves practically write Christ into their everyday repentance, everyday rethinking um, as they journey through this life? So I think folks are still thinking on chat. <laughs> it sometimes takes a little while for things to get going. Um, I wonder, Cal uh, Calvin and Camlin, if we can call on you to um, to consider this question while we're while we're waiting. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I yeah, it's not completely formed yet, but um, one one way that I write Christ on my heart, or even in my thinking is is really being present when I'm hurting and kind of I mean it's interesting because I misunderstood the atonement for a long time I think I, I I got this idea that the atonement meant that Jesus would take things away from me so I didn't have to experience it but actually at least for me right now Christ is inviting me to know don't run from this hurt, Camlin. I'll be here with you, but you need to look at this feeling and like figure out what it means, heal others, connect to others who are experiencing this hurt. And I think Calvin might've mentioned it in his prayer even, like what does mourn with those that mourn actually mean? 
It doesn't mean that I like, I don't know, from a distance feel sorry for people. It means I'm going to be sitting next to them and crying with them. So, because I feel it. So that's, if that makes any sense, that's currently how I'm kind of writing Christ on my heart is experiencing that. Thank you, Cameron. Unless Calvin has anything to add, we can move forward. I mean, we're, we're getting a lot of wonderful feedback in, in, the, in the chat, so I'll be pretty brief here. But um, just to, to echo a lot of what Cameron said, um, I think uh, a way for us to really write Christ into our experience of these women, and especially into repentance, is by becoming proximate. Um, and this is an opportunity, I think, for me to examine the, uh, you know, my, my privilege, the places that I, I have privilege. I have a lot of privilege as, as a white cisgender male um, in, in my community and, and in our church. And this is, I think, an invitation for, for me to write Christ um, into my repentance process it involves me getting proximate to people who don't have that, that same privilege, um, who people who, to women and to, to other, uh, other like uh, the IPOC uh, voices. Um, I've experienced uh, I, I've, exp I've been able to draw closer to Christ as I've seen places where, where my privilege um, prevents me and, and even um, causes me unintentionally, hopefully most of the time, to, to harm and, and to, to speak over others. Thank you. So from the chat, I'll just um, add, others are also thinking about um, kind of uh, closing this distance between ourselves and others, um, listening closely to personal revelation, um, trying to put the gospel into action, um, not being selfish uh, with our pain, um, letting Christ in helps write Christ in my heart. Um, it's sometimes easier to help others than to let Christ help me, but maybe that can also be, uh, be a, be a beginning. Um, other thoughts, um, you might be seeing this as well, Nathan. Um, receiving the sacrament as an invitation and an acceptance to enter into relationship with God. Um, and when our thoughts are not consistent with this relationship, um, really considering what the source of those thoughts, um, feelings, or actions might be that are taking us away from Christ and keeping um, him from being written on our hearts. Um, oftentimes that that's motivated by fear and not by by love so trying to um, to come back to to love and to um, put off fear um, I, I think this comment goes with what Camlin was saying inviting Christ to help us process our experiences um, right being able to um, to kind of accept that that pain and not not put that off um, Anything else you're seeing, Chris? Rebecca, I think you've done a good job here, although comments keep coming. Yeah, yeah. As, as we watch them, I'd like to um, include my own thought here that I find uh, what I think of as brokenness being an important part for me, and meaning that I have a tendency to feel like I can do it myself, I can earn or um, be entitled to repentance and the feeling that, uh, that I can't, that I am broken in a way, although it sounds bad, is a way that I need to uh, follow to get rid of that feeling that I can do without Christ and, and to open myself to, um, to, to the, uh, the uh, atonement. Yeah, and that really comes out in the words of Abinadi that you read, Nathan, that, um, where, he's, where he's quoting Isaiah, um, where we're really kind of coming to grapple with, um, with our brokenness and how that can be swallowed up um, with Christ. Um, I love the thoughts about um, a lot of um, I, thoughts here are centered on how Christ invites us to connect um, and that that's a way to, to center ourselves. I think the other thing that people are mentioning that we should make sure we think about are, are um, 
meditation, reflection, the sacrament, um, prayers, uh, a, a daily walk, a daily exercise of paying attention. Uh, that is um, comes up from so many so many comments that I think that is clearly an important part of our our, our exercise in focusing on Christ. Oh, thank you. Such great responses. Thank you. I, before we leave Alma 36, just uh, maybe one thought uh, to cap this off. Um, these experiences that we have with Christ as we are being born again are very subjective. They are our own. And even if others cannot objectively see that, for instance, my LGBTQ peers, um, others may not objectively see that, that is something highly sacred to you. And don't let others discount the intersection that you have had with Christ um, as you have wrestled um, and, you have, and as you have been born again. Hold to that and be proud of that. And that is something that is yours and yours alone to hold and that can actually carry you through uh, your life's journeys when others may not see uh, inside of you. So let's move to Acts 37. This is the, the last chapter of Alma speaking to his son, Helaman. Alma is going to entrust all the sacred texts to his son, Helaman. Uh, these are the records of the nation. Now, the scriptures, they provide a text. They are the words. And Nephi, Nephi knows something about writing text. In 1 Nephi 19, he started the whole Nephite civilization record-keeping process uh, that Alma is now handing down to his son, Helaman, 650 years later. Nephi made the small and large plates. Um, he also had the brass plates, which he would often teach his brethren from. And so let's move to slide eight, and let's talk about one way that Nephi shows us how we can interact with the text. Um, so let's cycle again. Rebecca, would you read um, this from 1 Nephi 19? Sure. 1 Nephi 19. Now it came to pass that I, Nephi, did teach my brother in these things, and it came to pass that... Um, I did read many things to them, which were engraven upon the plates of grass, that they might know concerning the doings of the Lord in other lands among people of old. And I did read many things unto them, which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scripture unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning." Thank you. So Nephi knew that while scripture is text, the text comes alive when we liken the scriptures unto ourselves and our own experiences and our own lives. Like Proverbs, uh, Proverbs teaches in Proverbs 5.15, we drink waters out of our own cistern and running waters out of our own well. We, we draw waters from our own experiences. So now that we have uh, a, an idea of how to approach the text, what is it that breathes life into the text? And that would be the Holy Ghost. So let's move to slide nine. And we're going to read uh, President Russell M. Nelson's latest tweet um, that sheds light on this. And um, Calvin, will you read this tweet? Absolutely. You can know the mind and will of the Lord for your own life. You do not have to wonder if you are where the Lord needs you to be or if you are doing what he needs you to do. You can know. The Holy Ghost will tell you all things what you should do. 2 Nephi 32.3. Revelation breathes life into text, as President Nelson has said. Revelation happens through the Holy Ghost. Now, in 1829, as recorded in Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord reveals to Oliver Cowdery, as he was trying to interpret scriptural text, that the Holy Ghost will come upon you and dwell in your heart. And this is revel uh, rev Revelation. 
Then in section nine, the Lord shed more light on the subject, saying, you study it out first, then ask God if you are right, and I will cause your bosom, bosom shall burn within you. Sometimes worry, especially LGBT people who may not feel particularly worthy, that they do not have access to the Holy Ghost any longer, thus disqualifying them from personal revelation. Uh, but, you know, take this as a note. These instructions given to Oliver were given to him the month before he was baptized. And even then, he did not yet have the power of the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. That was conferred later, probably months later. However, the instructions were abundantly clear that the Holy Ghost was available as part of revelation accessible to him. All of us can understand and liken the scriptures unto ourselves. When you are lacking in wisdom and seeking answers, you can access the divine to know for yourself what is true and know what is right for your life. As President Nelson said, the entire restoration started with the question. So question, God obviously appreciates questions. Study, ask God, liken the scriptures unto yourself. Personal revelation is the power of self-determination. You can know from the Lord where you need to be and what you need to do. So Alma then continues and he lists the sacred items that he is going to entrust with Helaman. First, the plates of Nephi, reserved for a wise purpose. Second, the brass plates, so a nation will not perish. Third, 24 plates of ether, danger for prophet's eyes only. And fourth, uh, the Urim and Thummim to interpret it all. And then five, the Leona. Now, the Leona is for day-to-day -day guidance in the physical world. It shows you how and where to travel. It is the compass, and it works when faith is exercised. We don't have a Leona today. And this is what Alma basically said to Helaman, that the Leahona is a type and a shadow of the words of Christ. And the words of Christ become our Leahona. And if we follow them, these words will point us to our promised land. The words of Christ are found in the scriptures, and it is found in Revelation through the Holy Spirit. Revelation is where Alma intersected with Christ. Nurture this, and you will know the way to go in your daily life. And for my LGBT peers, this daily journey is your journey. And as you encounter the dominant narrative in the church about LGBTQ people, you as if you are broken and not whole. And at some point in your hero's journey, either in or out of the closet, you will encounter a mentor or a teacher or even a sage, and they will pose a critical question to you. Who told you that you were broken? Listen to them, for this is a godly question, for you are not broken. And as an LGBTQ Christian, only your heart needs to be. For when our hearts are broken, we are completely open to the Spirit of God which is needed for personal revelation, and recognize our dependence on him for all that we have and for all that we are. And what you are is a whole and healthy child of heavenly parents who love you. Your choices will define you, but never, ever let others define you. As an LGBT Latter-day Saint, but when a choice is placed before you, always question who or what doing the placing of that choice. When hearts break completely open to the Spirit of God, we are capable of personal revelation and guidance. It is a gift of the restoration. As an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint, not broken. You may you may stand tall in the great heritage of saints who gift the broken heart and a contrite spirit, such as the privilege of every Christian in every age. So lastly, let's move to the last chapter of our lesson today. And that is Shiblon's chapter, 
Shiblon is a typical middle, middle child. He, he gets one chapter dedicated to him, whereas Helaman has two. He gets the records. And, of course, Corianton is the stereotypical youngest child, where uh, he has four chapters entreating him to take things seriously and repent. But in Alma 38, we have something very precious to take away from Shiblon's chapter. As you know, Helaman was not with his father during the mission to the Zoramites. So we see Alma reference the Zoramite experience with Shiblon. This is the mark of a great teacher, where Alma utilized the shared frame of reference to teach from a common experience. This is the mark of a great teacher. So Alma draws upon this remarkable experience with the Zoramites to teach Shiblon. He commands Shiblon he commends Shiblon's diligence and long-suffering with the Zoramites. And then he shares the secret to rise above one's affliction. So slide 10, and, and Chris, will you read slide 10 for us, which is Alma 38, 5 through 6. Yes. Um, and now, my son, Shiblon, Shiblon, I would that ye should remember that as much as ye shall put your trust in God, even so much ye shall be delivered out of your trials and your troubles and your afflictions, and ye shall be lifted up at the last day. Now, my son, I would not that ye should think that I know these things of myself, but it is the Spirit of God which is in me, which maketh these things known unto me. For if I had not been born of God, I should not have known these things. Thank you. You know, let's, let's face it. <clears throat> You are going to see a lot of crazy things in this life, things that will leave you astonished, possibly beyond measure. However, when you put your trust in God, you will be delivered out of your trials, your troubles, your afflictions. We know this because we have written Christ into our lives. We have written the text upon our hearts, and we have exercised faith so that the Holy Spirit will guide us with the words of Christ in our travels. Is not going to move mountains on your journey. I'll show you how to take them on and summit successfully. At the end of this chapter, we learn how to intersect with those in the margins. The Zoramites had a definite problem with the margins, and they created refugees because of it. What can we learn from this experience for LGBTQ siblings who are in the margins of the faith today? Let's move to slide 14 and read what Alma teaches Shiblon, where he teaches him to basically not be like the Zoramites. And Camlin, will you, will you read this slide, verse 14? Fourteen. Do not say, O oh God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren. But rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. To be like Christ, focus on the margins. He did. Be inclusive. Welcome. Stop for the wounded on your road to Jericho. There is so much focus right now on the law. God, but as lawgiver, God giveth and God taketh away. And with our black siblings in 1978, it will require a revelation akin to Peter's vision concerning the Gentiles to see LGBTQ people in the church as full and equal, to hear that what God hath cleansed, that call not thou uncommon, for God is no respecter of persons. As an LGBTQ person like Alma, we may subjectively and absolutely know that we have been born of God. And our experiences, as rich as Alma's, confirm this to our souls. Hold to this. But it is the prophets who must objectively see it all before there is equality measure. We did not get out born again experience with Mormon's narrative in Messiah. We learned of the sacred moment from Alma himself much later on in the narrative. And wrestle in their objective in their activity with God just as we do, if not more so. 
And as they do, good people caught in the transition are hurting and require our aid and care. So the best thing at the moment for LGBTQ people, if you feel safe to do, to do so, is to share your experiences. Share your sacred and tender Alma experiences with all who will listen. These are the rest of the story experiences that members need to hear. And in the meantime, this is a moment to mourn for the great loss to the church, for every precious LGBTQ soul who leaves because they cannot see the same Christ outside the closet as they witnessed in the closet. As Elder Kieran so powerfully stated in his 2016 April General Conference address, this moment does not define the refugees, but our response will help define us. What will your response be? Finally, to my LGBTQ person in the faith, you are the small and simple things by which great things shall be brought to pass. This will happen no matter where you find it safe to stand. For my fellow saints in the diverse body of Christ, it is unclear if we LGBTQ people are given or driven to the margins of faith, but this much is clear. We are your children and we act for bread. In the time a stone we didn't expect it to be cast at us. We will always be with you, see us. We continually wash upon your shores as waves, born to families to bless you when you did not realize you were in need of blessing. And the blessings of waves shapes for lines. And tides bring life to the everlasting lands, the kingdom of God. And this I leave with you today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Nathan and everyone. Um, and I, I've lost my um, access to the chat. Zoom decided to reload on my screen. <laughs> so I don't know if there are some other comments that came in, but I was struck by um, by some thoughts about that, that really fit with, with what you were talking about with the brokenness is in our hearts that, that we take to Christ. Um, uh, and at the same time, um, we need to recognize our holiness and our divinity. Um, uh, and our and our own access to the Holy Spirit. Um, um, as we think about um, that. Uh, Chris, was there anything else that came through that we should maybe pull in? Or are we good? I had to get off mute through two different buttons, sorry. Um, Nathan, the, the image of a refugee uh, has powerful echoes in in a number of ways and I people would uh, like you to reflect on that or think a, a little bit more with us about uh, about what it means to be a refugee or, or or why and how you use that word sure you know anytime in politics um, into the worship space. Um, I'm thinking of like Prop 8, uh, California, um, and Arizona, um, two, um, all of things designed to uh, deny LGBTQ people their rights. It, as soon as you bring this into the space of worship within the walls of the church, um, you create a very unsafe place for LGBTQ people. And, um, and when that happens, um, then you are no longer there. Um, you, of course, don't want to stand in places that are safe. And so you, you find yourself in the margins of the church. And so uh, that is, that's how I'm using the word uh, refugee at this point. Um, and like the, the survey that I initially showed that, uh, you know, there's much belief 
um, in, uh, in the doctrines of the gospel with LGBTQ people who intersect with affirmation, uh, but many of those don't attend. And, um, and I would beg the question, does this mean that it is not safe to be in the pews um, at this moment? Um, understanding what the dominant narrative towards LGBTQ people in the church is right now, which of course is celibacy. No access to marriage and restriction of the law of chastity uh, to those who do marry. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Um, I so appreciate uh, this discussion of Alma 36 through 38 and the opportunity to reflect uh, not just on this checklist, the four R's or five R's, but, um, but also um, the, to, to be able to um, reflect on and to hold um, our sacred experiences with Christ, our subjective experiences with the atonement um, in our hearts and to center um, our lives on, on that experience and our testimonies on that experience. Thank you. Uh, please join us for next week's lesson with Dr. Farina King. We will close today with an especially lovely rendition of How Firm a Foundation by Sovereign Grace Music, after which Kamlin Gibbons will offer our closing prayer. God of love, we are so grateful for the ways in which you have shown up for us in this time, in this pandemic, in this time of, of reflection, and that we are still able to connect in this way. We are grateful. And God, we truly do seek after you and our Savior for refuge and for healing. We are grateful for the ways in which you see us and find us in our spaces. And we pray for the Christ to help us to turn our, our hurt or our suffering into healing, into love into acting as your hands and God please help us to be like Alma who was able to share his experience and in testimony with those that he loved give us words give us connection help us to recognize and not miss these moments when they come and to seek them out where they are not and please bless us to continue to learn and reflect on what the spirit has to teach us individually this day and we offer our hearts and our hands in the name of christ the anointed even jesus christ amen